I can't imagine uh, a greater set of worship songs to set the stage for a passage uh, than the ones we just sang. I would encourage you this afternoon to get on your church app and go back and reread the lyrics as you think through this passage. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of First John, and we will spend our time this morning in the first chapter. I'm coming up on a rather dubious anniversary in my life, 11-year anniversary of me being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is a chronic condition in which the pancreas produces little or no insulin. For those of you that don't know anything about this, bless you. Uh, You shouldn't know anything about this. Insulin is a hormone needed to allow sugar to enter the cells of the body to produce energy. It allows sugar to be converted into fat when needed, and it also helps with the breakdown of that fat or protein. And in God's common grace, the medical community has developed a synthetic insulin that can be injected into the body of type 1 diabetics who do not produce this insulin. But unlike the amazing human body which God has created, the human body secretes the exact amount of insulin needed based upon what was been eaten, what sugar had, the liver has produced, the particular type of day. The insulin-dependent diabetic has to be vigilant to put just the right amount of insulin into his or her body, not too little and not too much. And they must balance their insulin intake, making sure they give themselves just the right amount. For there are two dangers that they must avoid. If they give themselves too much insulin, their blood sugar drops. It causes the cells in the body to absorb too much sugar from the blood. It causes the liver to relax, release less glucose, and these two effects together create dangerously low glucose levels in your blood. If the blood sugar is too low, the body may experience small little symptoms, humorous little symptoms, let me tell you. Sweating, a clamminess, a lightheadedness, a dizziness, a mild confusion where weird conversations arise and you do weird things. This is what I've read. Um, (laughs) There is a shakiness and at times a rapid heartbeat. But if it goes significantly low, more severe symptoms occur, major concentration problems, seizures, comas, and even death. But they also need to make sure that they are not imbalanced the other way, where they have given themselves, uh, they haven't given themselves enough insulin and their blood sugar is too high. If the sugar is not broken down in the blood, not only will the cells not get the fuel needed for their particular function, but the sugar in the blood will block small blood vessels and potentially call, cause heart attacks and strokes, kidney issues, blindness, foot damage, nerve damage, and even death. So the insulin-dependent type 1 diabetic is in a constant striving to balance his blood sugar, her blood sugar, between 70 and 120. That's the sweet spot, between 70 and 120. Too high, there is great danger. 
Too low, there is great danger. Two ditches that must be avoided. Spiritually, there is a balance that we must strike as it relates to our understanding of sin. Or we too will experience some significant negative symptoms. For the unbeliever, sin must be understood as an offense against a holy God. It must be confessed and repented of, and the, and the salvation from its punishment and power must be found not in ourselves, but in belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. For if not, the consequence of the guilt of sin will bring eternal separation from God and eternal punishment from God. But there's also a proper balance that must be reached in the believers, in the believers' understanding of sin, or they too will not enjoy all that is theirs in Christ. There are two ditches that they need to avoid in striking this biblical balance. On the one hand, the believer can be so focused on their justification and the forgiveness of sin that they live their lives as if sin is not a big deal anymore. I've been washed. I've been sanctified. I've been, I've been justified. I, 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 I no longer bear the weight of sin. They understand that they are saved from the penalty of sin, that they have been forgiven of sins in the past, the present, and the future. And instead of living biblically concerning sin, they live an almost a life as if law wasn't in the Scriptures. There were no imperatives in the Scriptures because Jesus fulfilled the law. They tend to not put too much stock into the sin that remains in their lives, or they define sin differently than God, and they live as they please. That is a ditch that they can fall into. On the other hand, the believer can so focus on sin's wickedness that even though they are forgiven of their sins, they live burdened in it or by it. They live as if God forgave them of their past sins, but how could he love me if I continue to sin? He died on the cross for my sins to, to wipe me clean, yet I chose this again. And they get burdened down by it. God's forgiveness covers the small sins, but I thought that thought. I did that thing, and there is no way that God in his holiness and his righteousness could overlook that. And they live encumbered by their failures of the past. And just as there is a danger for the diabetic if their blood sugar is too high or low, the believer is in jeopardy if they don't have a proper understanding of sin. When one does not live with a biblical understanding of sin and live a right balance between the seriousness of sin and God's victory over it, there is a loss of joy that is ours in Christ. And there is a loss of the experience of fellowship with God and ultimately a loss of ministry. For the believer who does not appreciate the seriousness of sin, they live contrary to who God is and to what God is about. And so instead of fellowship with God, they live in conflict with him. They, they lose the joy of walking in unity with their father. They lose the joy that comes from obedience. And they lose the joy of being used by God as a vessel of honor. 
For the believer who does not appreciate Christ's victory over sin, they live joylessly as well, in constant fear of God's judgment, in constant, uh, a constant sense that God is not pleased with them, running from him instead of running to him. Staying away from the community of faith because they're righteous, they're holy, they haven't sinned as I have sinned. They aren't defiled. And they cease to enjoy the joy of ministry because they they view themselves as a defiled, broken, useless vessel. Well, the passage before us today says a lot about joy. It says a lot about fellowship with God as the result of of our being in Christ. We, as members of the family of God, have been given joy. We have been given fellowship with the Father. But this passage also says a lot about sin. So as we study this passage together, I would like us to see how we can strike that proper balance when it relates to our understanding of sin so that we can experience the joy and fellowship we have as a result of our relationship with God through Christ. And we do so when we view sin through the lens of two things. Through the lens of God's character and through the lens of God's work. We'll be studying together verses 5 through 10, but I'm going to start in verse 1 as I read 1 John 1, 1 through 10. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifest, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Let's pray. Father, grant us a right understanding of sin. Father, we recognize sin's effect from From Genesis 3 through the end of the book, how it separates, it destroys, it it ruins. But Lord, as believers in your Son, we have a new relationship to it. We, We look at it in a different way. And Lord, I pray that you would help us with this balance, that your word and your spirit would teach us and lead us to this to this right balance, where we are protected from those two sides so that we may enjoy fully our fellowship with you 
and may our joy be complete. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The first way we stay balanced and avoid the ditch on either side in our Christian walk is to view sin through the lens of God's character. The Apostle John begins this section of his letter by directing us to who God is. Look at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. Well, what is that message? That message is that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we are to enjoy fellowship with God, if we are to walk in the joy of the Lord, we must begin by understanding who He is. Not what we should do, not what we shouldn't do. We begin with God. We begin understanding who He is. If we are to avoid the ditch of a wrong consideration of sin, we must begin with the person and the character of our Father. John makes two statements in verse 5, an initial one and a clarifying one, to ensure that we get the point. God is light. That's the initial statement. And the clarifying one is, in Him there is no darkness at all. In describing God as light, John is reaching back into the imagery of the Old Testament to reveal the character of the unseen God. Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak. Of Speaking of the future Messiah of Jesus, in Isaiah 49, verse 6, it says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Light was a common metaphor in the Bible. And when it was used here and in other uses of, of John, even in this, in this epistle, and his gospel, it symbolizes truth. It symbolizes righteousness. It symbolizes blamelessness, purity, and holiness. What John is communicating with us is that God is holy. That God is righteous. And then just so we don't get confused, just so we don't mess up and compare Uh, the righteousness of man with the righteousness of God. He has a second statement. And that is this natural contrast between light and darkness. And he says, and in him there is no darkness at all. If light is a metaphor for righteousness, if light is a metaphor for holiness and goodness, then darkness signifies evil, signifies sin, it, it signifies falsehood. And John is saying that there is no evil or sin in him. In these two statements, which say the same thing but in a different way, John is ensuring that we understand that God is completely and totally holy and without sin. He's not partially sinless, nor occasionally, nor temporally without sin, but he's continually, persistently holy. There is no sin in him. For God, notice, is light. 
It's his true nature. Unlike those that we see in our life that we would describe as righteous, that we would describe as religious, God does not have good days and bad days. He doesn't have times when he's holy and demonstrating righteousness and other days where he's not just doing so well. In him there is no darkness at all. He is, as James clearly states it in James 1, verse 17, every good thing is given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He does the same thing as the Apostle John. And that is why in verse 6, he says that we are lying if we declare that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while walking in darkness, the truth is not in us. For the believer to whom this letter is written, written to a believer, a relationship with God is never in doubt. There is never a sin that we can commit or a deed that we neglect that will cause us to lose our salvation, but our fellowship with God can be hindered. This passage is not speaking of sonship. It is speaking of, it is speaking of our fellowship with him, and it can go adrift. The word translated in both verse 6 and 7, where we see this word fellowship, is the word koinonia that many of us are familiar with. And the word means sharing together in the sense of joint participation and joint partnership. Joint participation and joint partnership. God's holiness keeps him from partnering with sin or participating in it. So you can see how the relationship is, is, is at, a, at, at an issue. The partnership is at an issue. God is doing and is holy and doing holiness, and the one who walks in darkness is going in a different direction. And therefore, if we continue to walk in darkness, living a consistent, habitual lifestyle of sin, making up our own ideas about what's right or wrong apart from God, justifying our behavior by redefining sin, by blaming it on other things, or by doing away with the entire concept of sin, then what would you expect but a divergence from the closeness with God, that that experience that we would have? We are in opposite directions. We're going in opposite directions. We're accomplishing opposite goals. We are not partnering together The sinning believer is walking in a different direction, is seeking a very different agenda. And that is why John says that we lie and do not practice the truth. If you say that you are partnering with God, yet sinning, you're lying. You you can't, because God doesn't delve into and sin in his actions. But... If in contrast to the lie, we align our lives to the holiness of God, if we recognize his word as the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged, if we believe in all that it teaches, obey all that it requires, and trust in all that it promises, as it says in our church's statement of faith, then we will be walking in the light, as it says in verse 7. 
And the result of that is that we will fellowship with one another. And there's that word fellowship again. If we pursue holiness, if we walk in holiness, then we are walking in the same direction. We are partnering with him in this pursuit. There is a fellowship with one another. The one another mentioned here is not between believers. It's talking about God and the, and the light walker, the, the one who is seeking righteous, righteousness, the believer and God. If you look down to chapter 2, verse 6 of 1 John, it says, The one who says he abides with him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Our abiding with Christ is the pursuit of holiness. Now, as we will see in the next few verses, the believer who fellowship, fellowships with God is not perfect. The fact that John speaks of confessing sin in verse 9, and he uses the present tense of that verb, indicating that he isn't referring to a perfect person, but one who is continually recognizing God's holiness, continually recognizing his sinfulness or the darkness in him, and is seeking repentance. God's character of his mercy and grace acknowledges that we haven't reached sinlessness. But in verse 9, he speaks to how this sinning believer is to continue in fellowship. God's character is the standard of what we do. It is also the defining measure of what sin is and how we view what is right and wrong. And that is what John says in verse 9. If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, John's use of the word confess, the Greek word homologeho, means to say the same thing as. And it allows us to look at sin as God sees it. It acknowledges sin and it takes God's side on the evaluation of that action or attitude or word. Not the world's, not the devil's, not our, even our own flesh. It is admitting that we have disobeyed God. That we have no excuse. That we have not emulated the light radiating from God. And that we have chosen the dark path. But it is not only agreement of what sin is, but how to view it. When we recognize God, we see it as an offense. God sees sin as an abomination, as a diabolical act that defames the name and nature of God and separates us from his glory and his pursuits and takes us into the very opposite direction of what we were created to do and to be. It is to live contrary to the purpose of our creation, contrary to God's desired path for our lives. Joy is lost and fellowship is not experienced when we continually sin. The believer who is not regularly confessing is the one who does not view sin in light of who God is, his holiness, his righteousness. 
When the believer is not regularly confessing, he or she is not repenting, they're not changing. And when the believer is not confessing, he is not experiencing the joy and fellowship that is theirs in Christ. So we must root out, we must see where it lies in the dark corners of our thoughts, in what we believe and how we speak in our actions through sins of omission and sins of commission. We must comb over all of our relationships with our spouses, our children, our co-workers, our neighbors, to see if there be any hurtful way in me. Because God is ultimately holy. And for us to experience all that we can through him, we must be in pursuit of that holiness. Do you feel joylessness in your life? Do you feel distant from the Lord? If so, begin to meditate on God's holiness and ask him to reveal the darkness that is in you and confess it and repent of it and pursue righteousness. On that path of perfect balance, there is a ditch And that ditch is that as believers, we don't recognize sin's wickedness. We don't think about it enough. But there's also a second ditch on the other side that easily we can fall into in regards to our understanding of sin. And it, too, robs us of joy and the experience of closeness with God. And that is when we are burdened by its wickedness, its offense to God, and we run from him because of our guilt. Because how could he ever forgive me for sinning in this particular way? Or how could he ever want me in his service because of my constant weakness, my continual failure, and my unworthiness? Our joy is lost because of the shame, and we are weighed down by it. But in this passage, we see the second lesson that the apostle shares with us. As we seek to develop a proper balance in considering sin, we must view sin through the lens of God's work. Not simply God's person, we need to view it through that lens, but also through his work. Twice in this passage, John reminds us of what God has done and what he is still doing today. In verse 7 he says, And the blood of Jesus his Son looking into the past, cleanses us from all sin. And in verse 9, he says, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In these two verses, we see two words that somewhat overlap. The word forgive and the word cleanse. The word forgive relates to the guilt of sin being pardoned, that our sin has been pardoned, that we have been declared Innocent, while cleanse has the idea of the defilement of sin being removed, that we are not only forgiven and our debt is paid, but that we are clean and able to now serve. The forgiven person has no need to fear God's judgment. The, The cleansed person is free to draw near to God in worship, is free to draw near in fellowship because of the defilement of his sin has been taken away. Forgiveness is the once and for all work of Jesus on the cross, while cleansing is the ongoing work of Christ in the life of the confessing and repentant believer. 
But notice the source of the forgiveness. Notice the source of the cleansing. The the cleansing agent is found in verse 7. And it is not your righteousness. It is not your sinlessness. The cleansing agent in verse 7 is the blood of Jesus, his son. It cleanses us from all sin. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection cleanses us of our defilement and our guilt. Jesus' blood not only cleanses us from all of our sins at the moment of salvation, but it has an ongoing cleansing effect of our present sins and the the sins yet to come. John is teaching that those who walk in fellowship with God find forgiveness for their sin, that they may enter his or her life with a sense of joy, knowing their past sins, their present sins, and their sins yet to come are obliterated based upon the work of God through the life of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. Immediately after discussing confession, the acknowledgement of sin as God defines it, John reminds his readers that God is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is redirecting the sinner, the eyes of the sinner, off themselves and onto the saving work of the cross. And that's the problem is we are so focused on the sin, we're so focused on our unrighteousness, we're so focused on our darkness, that our eyes are on us and not on the pure Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It, it takes our eyes off the sinning believer's failures and, wi- and wickedness and on the faithful and righteous God. These two reminders of who God is and what he has done through Christ's work on their behalf allows us to view sin as wicked and needing repenting of, but it does not hinder our fellowship with him. It it even grants us a greater joy as we meditate on this work and we meditate on what it has accomplished. There had been so, so, so we come to this kind of uh, uh, intersection in this passage where God's holiness is what was the cause of Christ's blood being shed. That, that, that that person who falls into the first ditch has to recognize that Christ had to die because of the seriousness of sin. But as we see that, we see that Christ did die. And so he reminds us here that God is faithful. God is true and his word and will will be accomplished. And what he has promised, he will fulfill. And it is clear throughout the entire Bible that he has promised to forgive sin when it is confessed to him. This amazing truth is littered throughout the Old and New Testaments. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. What a beautiful picture. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. For they will 
All know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Peter said, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come. And then in the passage The pastor has been teaching us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. For God to refuse to forgive our sins, for God to refuse to pardon our iniquities, He would be going against His word. He would be breaking his promise. He would be unfaithful. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary on this verse said, If God had spoken such promises and then had refused to forgive sin, he would have been unfaithful. But he is not. He is faithful to forgive in that he has promised to do so and he does do so. He is faithful. The Hebrew word translated faithfulness used in the Old Testament meant steadfastness, firmness, fidelity. Faithfulness in the New Testament spoke of reliability, consistency, and dependability. Psalm 119, verse 89, it says, Your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. He is faithful. He is faithful to do what he said he will do. And yes, that sin seems big. And yes, it is a burden. He is faithful to do what he said he will do. When we sin, oftentimes we run away from God because we can't believe we have been so unfaithful to him. But John reminds us that he is unlike us. He is faithful. But this verse also reminds us that he's righteous, that he's just. When we say that God is righteous, when we say that he is just, we mean that he is perfectly righteous in his treatment of his creatures. God is just in handing out rewards. God is just in handing out punishment. And speaking of Jesus... In Romans chapter 3, Paul says in verse 25 and 26, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because of in forbearance of God. He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, for his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God punished our sin at the cross. Whatever that sin is that is burdening you, whatever that sin is that's keeping you from running to to the Lord, whatever that, that sin that keeps you from ministering and enjoying the fellowship of the church, He punished that sin at the cross. He poured out all of His wrath on Jesus and He became our propitiation the appeasement or satisfaction, meaning that since Jesus has paid for our sin with his blood, 
God is bound in his righteousness to uphold that promise. Or he would be unjust. He has promised to forgive those that confess their sins and repent. And he is bound by his character. He is bound by his justice. He is bound by his righteousness to uphold his agreement. For God to punish the sin of the believer in his son would mean if for God to punish the sin of the believer in his son would mean that he would have to break his contract. And he's just, he's righteous. If if we are going to be punished for that sin, he broke his contract. But he doesn't break contracts. He's just. He has accepted the payment that Jesus made, and because of his righteousness and justice, he will not come back to us and make us pay for it. Our forgiveness and now our access to him is secure. But I think there's another element here that I think is extremely helpful for those of us that tend toward this particular ditch. And that is, God is not shocked by your sin. God is not like, uh uh-oh, Something's broken. He doesn't equate perfection with salvation. If you look at verses 8 and 10, you'll see that God has made it very clear. He has stated very clearly that you have been forgiven of your sin. You have been justified. That one day you will enter into his presence and sin will be removed and you will be glorified. But right now you are in a state of sanctification where you are becoming more like him, yet you are still in the unredeemed flesh. Verse 8 here says that if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. Verse 8 is referring to a false claim that it infiltrated the church that once one was saved, one could reach a level of sinfulness. Everyone has a mirror. Everyone knows that's not the case. John quickly confronts this and says that If you say that or believe that, then you have deceived yourself. And that's not truth. In verse 10, he speaks of another false claim that goes even deeper and is more blatant. This claim was not only that you are not sinning now, but that you have never sinned. And John says that not only are you deceived, but you are looking at this and saying that this is wrong. That the person who wrote it is a liar. And when God looks at you and says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that is a lie, God. I am not a sinner. Godly, God has clearly stated in his word that all are sinners. And the point I'm trying to direct our minds to is that God knows that the believer is not perfect. He knows that the saved individual is still battling the flesh. He knows our hearts. He knows our deeds. He understands the salvation process and that it looks like this. It doesn't look like this. He knows that now 
while your soul is redeemed, you are still living in this body of death, Romans chapter 7. And that is why, as you read the whole counsel of God, God is dealing with you as a redeemed sinner. He's not dealing with you as a redeemed perfect person. He's dealing with you as a redeemed sinner. He's dealing with you in your imperfections. Think with me just shortly on on the present work that Christ has on our behalf now. In this passage, he says he cleanses us from that defilement, 1 John 1, 9. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, he says, He gives us strength to accomplish the task. In Philippians 1, 6, he sanctifies us until the day of Christ Jesus. In Hebrews 4, 16, he functions as our high priest, and he bestows mercy to us and grants grace in our time of need. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he provides a way when we are tempted. And look at the verse, the first verse of chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I don't want you to sin. So I'm writing this to you so that you would recognize God's holiness and you would walk in the light. But then he immediately says, and if anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In that sentence, both the ditches. God's will for our life is that we walk in holiness. But he loves and comes alongside and he seeks to grow us even in our sinfulness. To view sin accurately, we must understand the very gospel message. For the unbeliever here today, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. But in each and every one of us, there is darkness and so the sinner has no fellowship with him to enjoy. The Bible is clear that God will separate himself from sin and he will judge it. The Bible speaks of an actual, literal place called hell where those that find themselves there will be eternally separated from God and judged for their sins. But God is gracious and God is loving. And so he sent his son Jesus to cleanse you from all of your sins. He came as the perfect person and he took a penalty that he didn't deserve so that we would receive a reward that we don't deserve. If you'd only turned to him in faith, believing that the punishment that Jesus received, that was yours, was rightfully yours, and that nothing you can do to merit you favor with God, only Jesus' life, his death, and resurrection. When you plead with God for salvation in Jesus, then you are adopted into his family and blessed with family status and can partner or participate with him as he seeks after, defines and seeks after holiness. Your sins are forgiven, your future is secure, and your present, it is aligned with him. But for the believer, the gospel is no less important. 
For in it, it reminds us of who God is. The gospel must be preached. We must preach the gospel to ourselves. For the gospel reminds us that God is holy, that he is faithful, and that he is just, that he forgives us of our sins and he cleanses us of all unrighteousness. The gospel keeps us balanced. It keeps us out of either of those two dangerous ditches so that we can enjoy fellowship with him. And we can enjoy the joy that is ours in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the truth of this passage. Father, we ask that we would preach the gospel to ourselves, that we would recognize that you are holy and without sin, and that sin is wicked. And it goes against your very nature And that we should run from it. We should seek it out in our life and confess it and repent of it so that we can enjoy the fellowship that is ours. But Lord, may that be balanced with our understanding of what you did with sin and how you demonstrated victory over it and how Jesus was our propitiation, how he was our substitute, how he took the weight And the punishment of that sin upon himself, a sacrifice that was without sin, blameless and upright, so that we could receive forgiveness and be viewed by you based upon the righteousness and obedience of Christ. Lord, may that cause us to run to you in appreciation to run to you, to to experience more of that love, more of that grace, more of that mercy. And Lord, enjoy obedience. Enjoy the fellowship of the saints. Grant us a correct and proper balance, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.